everyone. It's good to be with you once again. Isn't it nice when you get to sing Psalm 23? That's what we sang, right? Wasn't that Psalm 23? Am I wrong? It's always cool when you get to sing that. I bet there's some people out there that would say, that song's just way too contemporary and I just don't like the lyrics. It's a psalm. <laughs> Hello, you just sang the Bible. Well, I don't like it. Oh, that's funny. Anyways, it's good to be with you this morning on this Lord's Day. Yes, I agree with Kelly. I love the, the weather change. Um, it's nice for it to finally start getting cool, right? And hopefully it'll stay cool and, and we'll be cool. Good stuff. Last Sunday during our Job study entitled Sovereign Suffering, we looked at Zophar's first speech in chapter 11. We broke it up into categories and looked at three S's, Zophar's stinging rebuke, his sarcastic challenge, and his specious offer. In the next section, we will begin to examine Job's response to Zophar. It is recorded in chapters 12, 13, and 14, and I think that thus far, this is my favorite section of the book of Job, especially chapter 12. It's just awesome. Another divine purpose for Job's suffering, because we've already established a couple of them, and one of them was through the suffering that he would continue to honor and glorify God, and Satan would be put to shame because Job would prove that he's worshiping God because he loves God, not just because of what he has. So that was one of the divine purposes. But another one that we, that we begin to see here in this section was to expose the errors in Job's theology. Job had a particular theology. Everyone has a theology. As Sproul said, everyone's a theologian. Everyone has thoughts and beliefs about God. And Job had a theology, and it had problems. It, it, was, it was short and, and not completely accurate, or it was at least lacking. And so part of the the purpose of his suffering, and really the book of Job, is to expose the errors of his theology and lead him to a more robust theology, a more biblical theology, or at least a better understanding of who God is and what He has done, or what He does. In Job's theology, he believed that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked, and, and this is true to a degree, but when Job's wealth, children, and health were suddenly taken from him, his Beliefs, his theology began to unravel. Why? Because his theology did not fit his scenario, right? He's a righteous man. He's, he's done everything right. He's got a right standing with God, and then he's suffering. And that suffering that he experienced contradicts his theology because his theology says, his understanding of God says that he should have had nothing but ease in life and God's blessings. Chapters 12 through 14 are pivotal chapters in the book of Job. Significant, important, highly important, because they show Job in transition. He begins this transition out of his bad theology into a good theology. He begins it by questioning the truthfulness or accuracy or legitimacy of his theological system. And he does this through, uh, I would call them contradictory examples. He, he presents contradic uh, examples that contradict his theology. And yet we mustn't forget the context here. Job was what? Responding to the verbal attacks of his friends, Zophar in particular. So everything that he says here in this section, 12, 13, and 14, is framed within a defensive argument. 
But we do see the transition here, no doubt. This morning, we're going to nail down four Ds, Job's derision, Job's deconstruction, Job's demand, and Job's demonstration. Those are the things that we'll look at. That's how we've categorized this awesome chapter. And it's a long one, so I need to get right to work. I'd like for you guys to go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Job 12, Job chapter 12. And as usual, I think it's befitting that we pray before we actually get to work. We need the Holy Spirit's help. So let's do that. Let's bow our heads. Father, we, we ask that you send the Holy Spirit, and we already know He's here in your people, but we ask that, that He would manifest Himself in such a way this morning that He would prevail over our bad theologies, if we in fact have them, that He would prevail over the areas in our lives that need to, that need to be transformed and prevailed upon, that Lord, that the Holy Spirit would reveal the truth of this text to us, and more particularly, the big truth in this chapter is God's mightiness. And we pray that that truth would come through loud and clear, and that it would have a profound impact on each of us. So we humbly submit ourselves to you now. We place ourselves under the authority of Scripture, under the authority of your Word, and we ask in Jesus' name that you use your Word to transform us, to bring those who are spiritually dead to life, to bring those who are spiritually alive, sanctification, mold us and shape us. Use your word to accomplish your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we can pick up where we left off last Sunday and begin with the first D, and that is, again, number one, Job's derision. We see this in verses 1 through Three, derision is another word for contempt. We'll begin at verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Job answered and said, so we're getting the, the answer to Zophar and the friends framed here by this opening statement. It's Job is responding to what Zophar has said. In, chap, in verse 2 here it says, No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. Job, that's, a, that's actually a hilarious statement. I don't really care for the way the ESV words it, and we'll look at another rendering of it, but it's, it's, it's actually pretty hilarious what he said here. And what he does is he expresses his derision, his contempt, by firing really a double-barrel blast of bitter sarcasm at Zophar. He just hits him with both barrels, 12-gauge, boom, boom. The word used for people or the people denotes the upper class, the the kind of people who really matter in the world's eyes, the worldly wise. So he's saying, you people that are highly esteemed and, and noble in, in society, this is what he's saying. Really, a, a good paraphrase would be, this is what he said here, I have not the slightest doubt that you are the only significant people in the world. And I'm worried that when you die, there will be no wisdom in the world because you are the only wise people. This is what he's saying. And uh, some of you like the NLT. I do for, for quoting reasons. I don't use it to actually study because it's rendered down so much. to the. It just, it's just too easy to comprehend the word. I need something that, I, that I, it's going to cause me to wrestle. But it's a good kind of paraphrase type of translation. It, it, it nails this verse. It does a spectacular job. Listen to its rendering. It says, then Job spoke again. You people really know everything, don't you? And when you die, wisdom will die with you. 
this is, that's an awesome rendering. That's an awesome rendering because that's, that's exactly what Job has told Zophar and the friends. And, and it's just dripping, dripping with sarcasm. This is when you, you tell your friend after they've given you instruction, well, you're a real know-it-all, aren't you? That's what he's saying. Well, Zophar, you're, how old are you, 14? I don't know, he was really young. You really know everything, don't you, pal? Boy, I hope that, you know, somebody else out there gains some wisdom because when you die, there's the chance that wisdom will just go with you. This is what he's saying. So he fires back with, with der derisive sarcasm. And then we look at verse 3. Job says, but I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know about these things or about such things? Job continues by exclaiming that Zophar is, is not the only person there who has understanding concerning God's infiniteness, concerning His power, justice, and mercy toward the repentant, His wisdom, all the things that Zophar brought up in chapter 11. Job is saying to him, look, guy, I too have understanding, and I am not inferior to you. I'm not a second-class citizen to you because you're just so infinitely wise. I have wisdom as well. This is what he says. Now, it was probably the nasty comment back in chapter 11, verse 12, that inspired Job's defensiveness here, right? Because I don't think it's ever pretty or attractive when a Christian starts talking about how they're not inferior to others, right? We're dying to ourselves. We're, we're perfectly fine with being inferior to others, even though maybe in God's eyes we're not and in our eyes we're not, but we're okay with, with, we're okay with being on the lower tier of the ladder, but I think Job is so frustrated and so aggravated here by this, he, he has to defend himself because Zophar essentially called him a stupid man and, and that the only way that him, the stupid man, could get understanding would be when a donkey's colt is born a man, which is physically impossible. Unless you watch Clash of the Titans, there's all kinds of weird beasts on that thing. So this was a very insulting statement aimed right at Job, and he responds by saying, hey, look, I'm not inferior to you. I have wisdom. I don't have to wait till a donkey's colt is born a man. I already got it, pal. He's defending himself. We know that Job absolutely knew that Zophar was referring to him when he talked about stupid men and donkeys and donkey's colts and, and, and being born a man. In any case, the truth is Zophar held no monopoly on truth. He's not the the, the only person to have truth and wisdom. He's not the wellspring of truth and wisdom as he thought he was, and this typically happens with youth, right? Young people always seem to know everything. And the truth is that he had no monopoly on truth, and neither did Eliphaz or Bildad. Job makes clear that the truths that these guys have been presenting to Job, they're, they're not restricted to a few pious men, but were known by everyone in this group here, as well as others outside of the group, and known very well by previous generations. To knock Zophar off his wisdom high horse, Job sarcastically quipped, who does not know about such things? The things that you're presenting to me, not only I know, but others know. My neighbor knows this. People who fear God know these things about God. That's what he's saying. So that's the first point, his derision. 
you can just hear it in his rebuke and sarcasm aimed at Zophar and the friends. Secondly, Job's deconstruction, we see this in verses 4 through 6. Job says this next, I, and we'll look at verse 4 and 5 first. He says, I am a laughingstock to my friends. I, who called to God and He answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughingstock. In the a thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. Again, poetry, it's a little bit hard to discern what he's saying. I'll unpack it for you. He tells Zophar that he, a man whom God answers when he calls, right? God answers his prayers. A man who is both just and blameless. He lived a godly life. There, there wasn't any hidden sin in his life. This type of man, Job himself, has become a laughingstock to his friends. Why? He tells us because they have contempt for those who suffer misfortune. Why? Because in their theology, they believe if you're suffering misfortune, you had to have brought that on yourself. These were the type of religious men who would go around and they would, when, when they would see calamity strike people, they wouldn't say, oh, how sad. Maybe I can donate to a fund and help them. Maybe I can, you know, the guy lost his leg. Maybe I can mow his lawn. They weren't those type of men who were compassionate and empathetic and sympathetic. They would say, ha, 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 look what that, that guy must have sinned really great to have had that. He lost his job. He lost everything. Man, can you imagine the type of sinner he is? That's these types of men. Have you ever met someone like this? These uber self-righteous people who constantly slam others and think that every time somebody goes, oh, you had an appendicitis? That's because you were looking at something on the computer you shouldn't have been looking at. So God blew up your appendicitis, your appendix. That's like, really? Well, I had my gallbladder removed two years. What was I doing then? You know, poor John back there. You're a terrible sinner, John. Like, like, we don't already know we're terrible sinners. We know. I don't need anyone else to tell me that. I'll let the Bible tell me. But these were those kinds of men that didn't have an ounce of compassion in them. And, you know, if Bruce had an ailment or Harry or me, they would say, look, what you must have done something horrible to get that on your foot or whatever. All misfortune, according to their theology, and really part of Job's, he's transitioning away from that now, but... It's, it, all calamity and misfortune is self-inflicted. It's from hidden sin or something of that nature. We need to remember that their theology has zero category for righteous suffering. There's no such thing as righteous suffering in their theology, meaning the righteous people don't do anything wrong and they just suffer in life because life is hard. Life, there's cancer. There's these things. There's no category for that. You're, you're either doing good or doing bad, and if you're doing bad, calamity is going to come on you. That is their theology. And it's always the person's own fault. Now, I wonder how these friends of his, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, I wonder how they felt or what their perspective was like when calamity befell them. Because nobody escapes it. Well, it can't be sin for me. I mean, it can be for you, but not for me. I mean, how do they respond to their own difficulties and struggles and afflictions, you know? Probably with the same thing. They probably spent days and nights trying to find out what hidden sin they had. Who knows? Self-analyzing themselves all the time. And Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were determined to point this fact, they believed it was a fact, this truth out to Job, right? You know, you, you've got hidden sin, and that's why you've gone through everything. That's why you're experiencing this. They were determined to point this out to 
Job. And that is what was so frustrating for Job. He has friends that came to help, and they were like devils. But when Job defended his blamelessness, his innocence, they thought he was challenging or even questioning their tried-and-true theological system, right? You're going against the system, Job. You can't say these things. Just admit that you have sin, and then God will heal you. And, and, and they perceived that Job, when he, would, when he would challenge this and say, hey, I'm a blameless man. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know why it's happened to me. They, it just angered them because they, he was questioning their system. And, and especially it, it angered Zophar. We see that in chapter 11. That was just a brutal attack. And so what did they do? These friends, including Zophar, they just poured contempt on Job. They treated him as a laughingstock, which means they literally laughed at him. When he would say, I'm a blameless and upright man, they would go, ha, 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 no, you're not, because this kind of stuff doesn't happen to blameless, upright men. You're lying. And they would laugh at him. They would mock him. You, you really sense that the devil, who's really behind all this, this scheme here and, the, and, and Job's pain and affliction, you really sense his presence and bidding being done through the tormenting friends. And you know what was happening with Job here? He was beginning to realize how cruel his theological system can be. It misjudges those who suffer. Not everyone who's suffering, it's not always because there's a, a sin that's directly linked to that. His system was cruel because of that. It misjudges those who suffer. It, it mocks and despises those who experience misfortune. It considers those people out there, those bad sinners, a laughingstock. System was, theological system was, was cruel because it provides no answers or hope to the righteous when they go through hell. No answers to that. Only you must be guilty. You must be guilty. You must be guilty. That's always the verdict with their system. It doesn't even have a category for righteous suffering. Job was beginning to how realize how cruel it is. He was also beginning to realize how contradictory it is. His theological system was totally contradictory. The question Job seems to ask here is, how can my theological system be true when blameless men like myself suffer such terrible affliction? If God is always in the business of rewarding the righteous and giving retribution to the wicked, and I am a righteous man and I'm suffering, I'm getting the retribution, that's what it seems like. How could my theological system possibly be accurate, true, or right? It, my own life and experience and circumstances are contradicting my very beliefs. He's beginning to realize that here. This is part of his deconstruction. Verses 4 and 5 mark the beginning, really, of his theological de deconstruction. He is entering the process of exposure and then unlearning what he needs to unlearn and discovering what he and every believer needs to know, that the righteous do, in fact, suffer, and God is abundant in grace. He gives grace to us in the midst of our suffering. This is what he needs to learn, and this is what he's going to be taught through his suffering. 
That's one of the secondary divine purposes for the whole book and his whole experience. Verse 6, Job continues, he says, The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. Wow. So Job gives two more examples that contradict his theological system, robbers and idolaters. He tells Zophar the, the tents, which always represents lives, the tents or lives of robbers are at peace. Robbers are wicked. The scripture says repeatedly that they do not inherit the kingdom. Robbers harm others by taking their possessions and property, and sometimes by force and sometimes through violence. They're wicked. According to Job's theological system, they should receive divine retribution. They should suffer, and, and according to their theology, immediately, the minute that they, they take something from someone by force that doesn't belong to them, they ought to be struck with something. But Job had witnessed these criminals enjoying peace. He knew of some robbers in us who had wonderfully peaceful lives. In the second half of the verse, he describes the security of those who provoke God with gods in their hands. This is idolatry. Idolatry was common in Job's day. People carried around little false gods, little, little pieces of wood or little pieces of carved stone that represented some creature in creation, some little fake god, little idol. They did this wherever they went. They would carry these things around thinking they would be protected by them or blessed by them. This happened then. Tower of Babel was the ultimate example of post-flood early idolatry. It may have been still standing during Job's day or had been just destroyed, either way. But everybody in Job's context knew about the Tower of Babel, which was the ultimate symbol of idolatry. Who are the idols in that scenario? Men. May have been standing then. He lived in that period. Job witnessed rampant idolatry in us. And he noticed that these idolaters lived smooth, trouble-free, secure lives, the opposite of what he was experiencing. Remember, he's blameless and upright. The question Job seems to ask here is, if wicked robbers and idolaters deserve retribution but get peace and security, how can my theological system be true? How can it be right? How can it be accurate? Makes sense, right? These are the questions that he's, he's asking through his poetry. Let's move to the third D. Number three, Job's demand. We see this in verses 7 through 13. We begin at 7 through 10. Job continues by telling Zophar, but ask, ask the beasts and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, Verse 9, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. This is an awesome statement. Since Zophar compared Job to a wild donkey, <laughs> chapter 11, verse 12, he was basically calling him a jack-you-know-what. Job struck back by telling Zophar that he could gain much knowledge and instruction from the beasts, from the birds, from the bushes, from the fish. What Job is saying is that even the animal kingdom knows more about these things than you do. 
Go talk to a lizard. You look like one. <laughs> Specifically, Job's friends would learn that their theological system is defective and that the righteous sometimes suffer and the wicked sometimes succeed. Creation understands this. Most importantly, if they were to if they were to seek to get wisdom from creation, they would learn that God is sovereign and He operates according to the counsel or to His own counsel and understanding. We see that in verse 13. Not according to what, what people like Job's friends or Job himself, not according to what they know, think, or want. Job demands that Zophar study creation because... Why? God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. You have a lot to learn. If you would just study creation, you know what I'm talking about, and you'd know a thing or two about how God works. This is what he's saying. In verses 9 and 10, Job tells Zophar that the sovereign hand of the Lord has caused his affliction because all life and breath is in the sovereign hands of God. We see expressions of this same truth throughout Scripture. In Numbers 16, verse 22, God is called the God of all spirits and of all flesh. There's his sovereignty over all the created, really the created order, but in particular over angels and demons and, and men, people. Daniel chapter 5, verse 23, King Belshazzar is told, You have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. There's the sovereignty of God over man there. And in Acts 17, verse 28, Paul told the men of Athens, In God we live and move and have our being. The sovereign hand of the Lord, He has all life in his sovereign hand. The question Job seems to ask here, and I think he is asking, if all life is in the sovereign hand of the Lord and he controls what happens to all people, maybe he operates outside of our theological system and actually does whatever he wants whenever he wants. What a wonderful, implying question to make before these friends. Verses 11 through 13, Job continues, Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is with the aged, and understanding in length of days. Verse 13, With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Job tells Zophar that he has tested Zophar's words, Zophar's Counsel, like the palate, tastes food. And what? He has found it lacking. Zophar's words to Job were unseasoned, were bland, were unsatisfying, empty. Verse 12 is a rebuke. Wisdom is with the aged. Understanding comes with time. In other words, this is what Job is saying to Zophar. Aren't you a bit young to be giving me advice? This is what he says. Boy, you just talk, 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 and you know everything. But aren't you a bit young to be giving an old-timer like me advice? Because I think Job was probably advanced in age here, 60s or so. And here's a 20-year-old trying to tell him the way of the Lord. 20-year-olds typically don't know the way of the Lord. 
Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. In most cases, they don't. Verse 13, Job demands that wisdom and might are with God, not with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. In verses 14 through 25, this is an amazing section, Job focuses on God's might and demonstrates it through a multitude of examples. Buckle your seatbelt. This is pretty incredible here. This is the fourth D, right? He's already made his demand in these things. Now we look at the fourth D. He wants them to look at creation. Now he's going to demonstrate God's might. Verses 14 through 25, we pick it up at verse 14. This is Job's demonstration. He says this of God, If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. Stop. Job tells Zophar that, that when God tears down something, none can rebuild it. And when God shuts a man in, none can reopen it. What is he saying here? What does he mean through these poetic examples? He is saying that unlike human might, God's might cannot be resisted. Right? If God locks somebody up, there's no prison break. They stay in the prison. John would love that. Right? We, we, get, them, we, we get them for bad crimes and we put them in, we put them in, we don't, don't, do they even get to the jail these days? It's like they go in, they're processed, and then they're back out on the street doing the exact same thing. That's human might failing. But with God, if he tears something down, I mean, think of it like this. Was the Tower of Babel ever rebuilt? No, he destroyed it, wasted it, turned it into rubble. It was never rebuilt. In fact, he spread all the people out from that point. They started to go out into all the world. That place was no longer even an epicenter for social activity or pagan religion. If he tears something down deliberately with no intention of having it rebuilt, it can't be rebuilt. It will never come back. The same thing applies to those whom he captures or locks up or what have you. Humans can resist the might of other humans. Amen? Human might can overcome human might. This happens all the time in war, right? The U.S. resisted the might of Saddam Hussein, or as George Bush Sr. would call him, Saddam. We, we resisted the might of Saddam Hussein and eventually tore down his regime. And he was pretty mighty, probably the most powerful military in the Middle East at the time. And we, we walked over him in 24 hours. It was like he didn't exist. That's an example of human might overcoming other human might. But when it comes to God's might, no one can resist it. No one can turn it back. His might is far too great for us mere mortals to contend with. Job was probably referring to himself in the second half of the verse. He felt that he had been shut in by God and no one could deliver him from his affliction. Really what he's saying, I think, to Zophar here is, you've given me all these instructions and all these things that I can do, but we're talking about a mighty God, and no matter what I do, I can't reverse his might. I can't stop him from accomplishing his purposes in this situation, even though they're very hard on me. They're difficult. I can't stop him. Your little recipe's not going to work, dude. Verse 15, if he will, if, in speaking of God again, if he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. Job tells Zophar that God withholds the waters and sends them out. What does he mean? It means that God uses his might to control weather patterns, to bring droughts or floods. God 
is the master over the weather. His might is clearly seen throughout weather displays, but he, in his power, in his strength, in his might, he directs it. And he causes floods, he causes droughts. Eliphaz even knew this. He pointed to it back in chapter 5, verse 10. Verse 16, Job continues, With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. Job tells Zophar that strength and sound wisdom belong to God. He said this back in verse 13, a little differently, but same truth. Why does he repeat himself? Because he is convinced that Zophar and the others believe they are strong and wise. You guys think that wisdom stops with you and might stops with you. It doesn't. God's the only one who possesses these things. In reality, Job knew that they weren't wise or strong or strong or wise. He knew that they were weak. He knew that they were unwise. He knew and was learning really quickly here that they were buffoons. He tells Zophar, the deceived and the deceiver belong to God as well. In other words, both deceived and deceiver are under God's sovereign control. God's God basically rules and reigns over everyone and everything. Some people think that God doesn't have anything to do with evil. He actually rules and reigns over the devil. He rules and reigns over the demons. He rules and reigns over everything. There's nothing outside of His sovereignty. He rules and reigns over believers and unbelievers, over righteous and wicked, over regenerate and reprobate, over kings and peasants, over masters and slaves, over rich and poor, over good and evil, over cops and robbers, over angels and demons, and over 49ers and raiders. He's over all of it. Although I think the raiders sometimes slip his will and they're like out there doing whatever. They never slip his will. Everyone and everything is under his sovereignty. R.C. Sproul said it really well. It's in your bulletin. There are no maverick molecules in the universe. If there were one molecule that was outside of God's sovereignty in the entire universe, which is so vast we can't see the end of it, then God would not be sovereign at all. And there is nothing outside of His sovereignty. Everything is under God's sovereignty. Job understood this. He accepted this reality, especially when it came to his own life and suffering. He may not have liked his life at this time and suffering, but he knew God was sovereign over it and that God was behind it. He says that all creation knows that the Lord did this to me, including myself. I understand that this is God's doing somehow. What is he expressing? The sovereignty of God over his circumstances. Verse 17, continuing, he says, He leads counselors away stripped, and judges he makes fools. The task of counselors is to provide wisdom to those who need it. Think of uh, Ahithophel as his name. He was a Gilanite. He served as King David's counselor, 2 Samuel 15, verse 12. Okay, so there's an example of a biblical counselor, Ahithophel. But when counselors, right, their job is to give wisdom. But when counselors fail to give good godly wisdom, God can strip them of their positions and influence. In other words, He can lead them away stripped. He eventually did this with Ahithophel. After Ahithophel betrayed David to serve David's insurrectionist son, Absalom. Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12. The task of judges is to make sound judgments, right? Wise rulings. Judgments that, that uphold justice and defend the innocent. But when judges fail to make sound judgments, 
God can overrule them and turn them into fools. This is what Job is saying. Uh, this is kind of repeated in Psalm chapter 94, or not chapter 94. Yeah, no. Psalm 94, verses 20 through 23. It was a chapter, but really it's a psalm. And this is what Bruce read earlier. He read the whole chapter, but we will look at verses 20 through 23. Listen to what it says here. I think this is the good news uh, Bible translation. It's pretty good. Have nothing to do with corrupt judges who make injustice legal, who plot against the righteous and sentence the innocent to death. But the Lord defends me. My God protects me. He will punish them for their wickedness and destroy them for their sins. The Lord our God will destroy them. There's God's position on bad judges. And Job is expressing a very similar truth about bad judges here. What is Job's point? It is that God's might is mightier than the mightiest counselors and judges. God can overrule them or cancel out their counseling. He can do whatever He wants with them, whenever He wants. And you can rest assured that when they make bad judgments or give bad counsel, He will at some point deal with them. His point is that God is mightier than any counselor or judge. Verse 18, God loosens the bonds of kings and binds a waste cloth on their hips. Job tells Zophar that God can overturn the seemingly irreversible decrees of royalty and free those who were held by them in bonds. In other words, God can defeat brutal kings and rulers and set their captives free. And when God frees these captives, He does what? He covers their nakedness and their shame with a waist cloth. What does that mean? It's ancient underwear. And what is this here in, this, in these verses? What is going on here? This is a, a prophetic picture of what the Lord Jesus came to do. He came to defeat demonic royalty, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2, and lead the captives free, right? You see the connection there? Isaiah 61, verse 1, Psalm 68, verse 18, Ephesians 4.8, all speak to this work this profound, powerful work of Jesus Christ. Job's point here is that God's might is mightier than the mightiest earthly king. I mean, he can do whatever he wants with our politicians, with our president, with the kings of the world, with, with the sheiks of the world, with the, the princes of the world. His might is mightier than all of them. Put together times a trillion Verse 19, God leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. The task of priests is to represent God to man and man to God. A priest is like a spiritual liaison between both parties. But when or if they fail to do their duties, if they commit evil, God can remove them from office and lead them away stripped. Think of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. I like to call him Yahoo because that's what he acted like. These guys were young priests, sons of Aaron, young priests who sinned against God, who failed to do their priestly duties. And what happened? God struck them down with fire. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The word mighty here is a generic term that seems to represent anyone who exercises authority over others. It could be a king or a queen or a, a, a prince, a governor, a military leader. It could be anyone who exercises 
authority over people. If they fail to exercise God-honoring authority over others, God can overthrow them. Think of King Saul. When he dishonored God, when he failed in his kingly duties, God overthrew him and replaced him with who? David. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 28, Acts chapter 13, verse 22. Job's point, again, is that God's might is mightier than the mightiest priests, mightier than the mighty, mightiest royalty, mightier than the mightiest leaders throughout the world. He does with them whatever he wants. His might is infinitely superior to leaders. That's his point. Verse 20, God deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. Job tells Zophar that, that God basically silences the lips of trusted advisors and takes away the discernment of those who are in senior positions. Those in senior positions in, in Job's day were called elders. We're not just talking about church elders here. We're just talking about el the elders of a town, the elders of a community, the elders of a city. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 14. God can strip these leaders of speech and discernment when they abuse their positions. In Psalm 31, verse 18, David prayed for this to happen to his slanderous adversaries. He said, Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. He literally prayed to God to quiet those bad advisors and those adversaries. Now, there have been instances where God has judged entire churches and removed the remaining discernment of their elder boards, which led to what? More and more unbiblical decisions and then eventual total collapse. God has done this in churches. One way you can tell if the elders of a particular church have lost their discernment, if God has removed it from them, is if their churches look and sound like the world. That's how you know Discernment has been taken away from those elders. And the question I would ask is, did they possess it to begin with? Sometimes these quote-unquote elders don't have any biblical discernment. But one way you can tell is, what do, how does that church program? How does it hold services? How does it respond to the culture? It seems like churches today are more interested in analyzing the culture and mimicking that so they can try to get people through the doors. That, my friends is the exit of discernment. The church is to be the church according to Scripture. If it offends people, suck it up. It's the way it's supposed to be. Quite frankly, if Christians are living out the Christian faith the way that they should, it's going to inspire two things. Bitter hatred or maybe some curiosity because maybe the Spirit's at work in some people's lives. You can pick almost any megachurch today and you can see the effects of discernment being removed from the elders. Why? Because megachurches tend to be the most worldly types of churches on the face of the earth. They look at the culture and they copy the culture and say, look, we got to get more people into this place. You have 7,000. That's not enough? When is it enough for you? And I think that's primarily because the egos of the pastors are tied to the numbers. I think we would all agree that there is a discernment famine going on in a lot of churches today, isn't there? Churches and elder boards lack 
discernment. Why? Because God has judged them and removed whatever bit they had left, and now they cannot lead, govern, plan biblically at all. And the churches look just like the world and sound just like the world. Hey, I'm coming up this morning not to give you a sermon. I'm going to give you a TED Talk. Boom! We see that in churches every day. Discernment gone. But that's not Job's point here. That's my point. Job's point is that God's might is mightier than the mightiest advisors and elders, period. His might is greater than all of them. Verse 21, God pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. Princes should be rendered nobles like in the NASB. I like nobles better. Job tells Zophar that God scorns strong nobles by loosening their belts. What does it mean to loosen the belt back then? I do it after I eat a huge meal. That's to give myself relief. In the Bible, it means something completely different. The loosening of one's belt is to take away their strength. The idea that the belt on a combat soldier, an ancient um, combat soldier from antiquity, they would wear a belt and it would keep, the, it would keep the, the breastplate and everything in place and keep everything organized and the vital organs protected. It would give them a sense of strength because they know that they would be safe. When the belt is stripped and taken off, bam, it has the idea of losing the strength. When a person with high social or political status, a noble, refuses to honor God, God can pour contempt on them and remove their strength. What's Job's big point here? His big point is that God is mightier than the mightiest nobles. Period. Verse 22, he uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. Job tells Zophar that God uncovers deeps out of darkness. What is this? This is incomprehensible mysteries, and he easily brings them to light. In other words, the infinite might of God's infinite mind can unravel what men cannot understand, the greatest mysteries. This statement was surely a response to Zophar's earlier question to Job. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Chapter 11, verse 7. Job's point is that God's mighty mind is mightier than the minds of the mightiest men who have ever lived who live now and who will live in the future. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 34 capture this, the infinitely mighty mind of God to a degree here. Even these words, I think, fall short, but they're pretty solid. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's saying God has the ultimate brain. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who could possibly comprehend the infinite, infinitely mighty mind of God? Or who has ever been God's counselor? Who could give God counsel? I tell you, we try to when we're suffering. Hey, I think you could do this and it'd make things better. Job certainly seems to be making suggestions. Oh, his point is that his mind is mightier than all the minds of all the mightiest men who have ever lived, will live, and who will live in the future, or who even live now. Verse 23, God makes nations great, and He destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Job tells Zophar that God makes nations great, 
Sounds kind of like the president's motto, right? Make America great again and again and again and again. God is the one who makes nations great, not Trump or an election. God is the one who destroys nations. He makes them great or He destroys them. He also enlarges them or He shrinks them through being conquered, right? That's what's meant by led away. The future of any nation is in the hands of God. He reserves the right to cause them to flourish or fall. If a nation serves God, he will bless it. Psalm 33, verse 12. If it serves wickedness, he will curse and destroy it. Psalm chapter 9, verse 17. What is Job's point? It is that God's might is mightier than the mightiest nations. The mightiest nations. Is this not proven through Israel's conquer of the promised land? You think the nations that they destroyed, the Canaanites and all these nations that they annihilated, the Amalekites, all the ites, the termites, do you think that these nations were weaker than Israel? These were the most powerful nations in the world. They were the Roman Empire of that day. And God smite them with ease. Why? Because His might is mightier than the mightiest nations. And He used little feeble Israel to do it. His might is mightier than the mightiest nations. Verses 24 and 25, our last verses. God takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light, and He makes them stagger like drunken men. Lastly, Job tells Zophar that God takes away understanding. Understanding means reason, right? He takes away their reason from the chiefs. What is chiefs? It is leaders. Leaders of whom? The people of the earth. God takes away the reason from the leaders of the people of the earth. That is what he said. Now, this sounds like Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and verse 28, doesn't it? If you're familiar with that text where Paul describes how God exercises His wrath against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, unrighteousness by, by how? How does He do this? He, he gives them over to a depraved mind. To be given over to a depraved mind is to have what? One's reason removed so that that person, he or she, can no longer discern right from wrong. This is precisely what Job is talking about here. Paul expressed it thousands of years later in Romans. This is precisely what Job was talking about. Once reason is removed, these leaders will begin to, as Job describes, wander in a trackless waste, grope in the dark without light, and stagger like drunken men. In other words, they will have no sense of direction or ability to cope with the everyday challenges they and their societies that they lead face. Basically, what Job is saying is that God removes their reason, what little bit of reason was left, He removes it, and they become useless blind leaders, like literally like the blind leading the blind. Job saw this in his day with chiefs. Back then, they were called chiefs. And we see it in ours, don't we? We've got blind politicians leading a blind public, and our nation is plunging deeper and deeper into the depths of immorality and wickedness. Our system's different from Job's. Chiefs 
came up through family lines and all that. We actually elect our leaders. So our depraved leaders are an expression of a depraved people who put them in office. Now you can see the devastating effects of God's wrath on our society, right? The removal of reason from unrepentant, sin-addicted sinners. You can see it everywhere. This wrath and judgment of God removing what little reason they had left, right, to these unrepentant, sin-loving sinners, it has created a land of confusion where people do not know right from wrong here anymore, do they? It used to be wrong to have sex out of wedlock. Not today. It used to be wrong to kill a baby in the womb. Not today. It used to be wrong to practice homosexuality. Not today. It used to be wrong to lie and spread fake news. Not today. It used to be wrong to use foul language. Not today. It used to be wrong to disrespect authority. Not today. Our nation has been judged and stripped of reason, turned over to a depraved mind, and its destruction is imminent. And this is why we must share the gospel. It is the only news that saves and rescues sinners from impending doom. It's the only thing. We've got an election coming up, and I think there's quite a bit at stake with it, but Christians are, are just, I, I, I just know Christians are just putting so much on it. It, it, it doesn't matter who's elected. I mean, it, it has implications for us and our Constitution. I get that, but there, there is just no saving America. It's done. It's got 50 million murdered babies, the blood of 50 million murdered babies on its hands since 1973, 1972, whenever they passed Roe v. Wade. That's not something God's going to just pass over. And the carnality and, and lust and perversions and sexual immorality, you cannot escape it. It is everywhere. This nation's doomed. It's doomed. I'm not saying don't go vote, but I'm just telling you that if you think that a politician or even one who is not a politician, who just acts like Boss Hogg from the Dukes of Hazards. If you think that a politician, whether his name be, last name begins with a T or a B, he don't even know where he's at. Sorry about that. Not really. You think that these people can save this country? You think that they can actually make America great again? How can somebody make America great again when God is the one that makes nations great? And when God has judged a nation, it'll never be great again. Its destruction is imminent. I think we can all see this, even in our own little context. I, I bet you if we were to do a ride-along with John, we would look up to the sky and say, I don't know why you haven't destroyed this thing yet with just the criminality that's out there. It's unbelievable. The other night I couldn't sleep. 
and it was like a Wednesday. That's an insignificant night, right? I mean, what are you doing on Wednesday? Usually sleeping. It's 12.15. I can't sleep. So I decided to put in one of my earbuds and listen to the police scanner. Big mistake. I could not believe the criminal activity at 2 in the morning on a Wednesday, uh, Wednesday morning or Thursday morning. I mean, somebody got, at, at 1.30, somebody was beaten to a pulp in front of the tiki. Eleven people were trying to jump the fr- fence and break into the white elephant. Notice how it's bars. Somebody got jacked up at, at the Mitchell Overpass going onto the highway down there at the end of Mitchell Road, and they were down there responding. I mean, it was just like the police just, they couldn't even keep up with the volume of criminal activity at, at 2 a.m. on a Wednesday. Finally, I just said, well, you're never going to sleep if you keep listening to this. They took cops off the air, didn't they? So I got to get my cops somehow. Don't do it at, when you can't sleep. But I just couldn't believe all this stuff was going on when people should be at sleep, you know, at home, asleep, getting ready to get up to go to work the next day. No, they're out there robbing and raping and pillaging. It's bad. It is bad. It is bad. I feel, I feel bad, and I pray for our law enforcement officers. They are fighting a tide of evil that, that this country has never seen. And that just tells me that God has judged this nation. He has turned us over to a depraved mind and our destruction is imminent and we're starting to see it expressed in every conceivable way. And so we must pray and preach the gospel. That's all we can do. And buy a dang gun. Up in Seattle, I think 117 officers quit their post because they've been defunding the police up there. And one guy was interviewed by a news agency and said, well, if you call 911, don't expect anyone to come. You're on your own. It's scary. This is what happens when God turns a people over to a depraved mind. You end up with no reason, no right from wrong, no right or wrong. They can't discern it, and you get chaos and anarchy and violence. You get a pre-flood situation where the thoughts and intentions of man's mind is evil all the time. That's what's happening. And one day, one day, the sky will crack, the trumpet will be heard, and Christ will be here. The sooner the better. Job has, back to the sermon, Job has clearly demonstrated God's might. Amen? Has He not given us a tour de force of God's might in this chapter? It's amazing. His point is that God's might is mightier. Really, through giving this, these, His point in that particular scenario is that God's might is mightier than the theological system of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and it would be a dangerous mistake to attempt to bind Him to it. That's Job's point through giving this volley of awesome scripture about God's might. He is greater and mightier and bigger than our own little theology. And if if we try to box him up in it and just predetermine everything that he's going to do, do we not understand that, that God's sovereignty is wild and free? He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. That's Job's point. God cannot be boxed 
in. And that's what you friends of mine are attempting to do. That is dangerous. That is foolish. Closing. I would like to focus once more on the deconstruction of Job's theology as we wrap up. I believe without a doubt that this deconstruction of his theology was an absolute expression of God's grace toward him. No doubt. God used a process to achieve this, didn't He? It included suffering and bad friends. The message of Job and really of the whole Bible is that God not only saves sinners from wrath, death, and hell, He also saves them from bad theology and false religion. God brought some of us out of Roman Catholicism, didn't He? God brought some of us out of Jehovah Witnessism. God brought some of us out of Mormonism. God brought some of us out of Charismania, health and wealth, the prosperity gospel. God brought some of us out of Arminianism, a 16th century heresy that is really still very strong today. He brought me out of that. Delivering us from these bad theologies and false religions is an expression of God's grace toward us. God is currently in the process of deconstructing the remaining ideals and theological implications of these systems, right? And replacing them with truth. This too is His grace. The deconstruction process for Job was difficult. It was hard. And it will be difficult for us. It's not easy to walk away from these groups or shed their teachings. We can have relationships with people who are still in them. And they can make life more difficult for us through criticism and shunning and separation and persecution. The teachings from these groups and cults and false religions and false theologies, they they have become embedded in our minds, which can make it hard for us to accept the actual truth when we see and hear it, right? The struggle is real. The struggle for many of us is real. The struggle of of coming out of something and coming into the truth. That struggle, it's difficult, it's arduous, it's hard, it's painful, it brings people against us. It's a real bona fide struggle, is it not? But guess what else is real? God's might. His might is mightier than our struggles. He will prevail. He will bring the good thing that He hatched in us to fruition, to birth. He will bring it to completion. Even if that process began in a cult that preached a little bit of the gospel, maybe you got saved in charismania, but God has now saved you out of it. I know there's people in this room. You know who I'm talking to. God will prevail regardless of how difficult our struggle is because His might is mightier than our struggles. God will 
renew our minds. He will conform us to the image of His Son. Romans 12, 2 and chapter 8, verse 29. That was predestined. He will do it. Someone once told me, whoever gets a hold of you first, that's what you'll be. There's a grain of truth to that. But you're also implying that God can't change that. And He can. His might is greater than our, greater than our previous cult. He will conform us. He will prevail. He will conform us to the image of His Son. That's His sovereign objective. He will do it. It's guaranteed. And guess what? His grace will carry us through the deconstruction process as the Spirit leads us into all truth. John 16, 13. Hallelujah. We should rejoice and thank God for His might and grace. Amen? Amen. We should rejoice. 